0: We're going to be in 1 Corinthians, chapter 11. Hear now the reading of God's word. Now I commend you, because you remember me in everything... And maintain the traditions even as I delivered them to you. But I want you to understand that the head of every man is Christ. The head of a wife is her husband. The head of Christ is God. Every man who prays or prophesies with his head covered dishonors his head. But every wife who prays or prophesies with her head uncovered dishonors her head. Since it is the same as if her head were shaven. A wife ought to have a symbol of authority on her head because of the angels. Nevertheless, in the Lord, woman is not independent of man, nor man of woman. For as woman was made from man, so man is now born of woman. And all things are from God judge for yourselves. Is it proper for a wife to pray to God with her head uncovered? Does not nature itself teach you that if a man wears long hair, it is a disgrace for him? But if a woman has long hair, it is her glory, for her hair is given to her for a covering. If anyone is inclined to be contentious, we have no such practice, nor do the churches of God. Let's pray, and we'll be dismissed. Oh, my goodness. It's the challenge of expositional, sequential preaching, isn't it? Some of you remember the classic book, We're Going on a Bear Hunt. One of the favorites in our house. In it, a mom and dad and their children and their dog go out looking for a bear. Why? I don't know. But along the way... The going gets a little tough, and they encounter tall grass and a deep, dark forest, a river and mud, even a snowstorm. And every single time they, they hit one of these hindrances, the family says the exact same thing. You remember what it is? We can't go over it. We can't go under it. Oh, no, we have to go Yep, yeah, you know it. We have to go through it. I think a similar kind of resolve is needed, isn't it, to travel through the stranger parts of the Bible, passages like this one. The beauty of preaching sequentially, as I said, verse by verse and chapter by chapter through entire books of the Bible is that we can't avoid the hard parts. We can't go over it. We can't go under it. We just have to go through it. But as we do, I think there's something that we need to bring with us. Whenever we read, interpret, and apply the Bible, especially when we're in difficult passages, we need to remember to scan. S-C-A-N. The Bible is S, sufficient for life and godliness. The Bible is clear in all of its big ideas. The Bible is authoritative in all that it claims. And the Bible is necessary in order to know God's will and God's ways. The Bible is sufficient, clear, authoritative, and necessary. And we need to have all of those categories in our mind when we come to a passage like this, don't we? Just a handful of comments before we dive in. Number one, you're going to see that there is uh, mentioned in here things like prophecy. Now, I'm not going to get into that today. We're going to have plenty of time in subsequent passages to dive into what that means. And so, if you hear me over the course of preaching say something like speaking God's word, then I'm using it as a synonym for prophecy, and you get an idea of what I understand that term to mean. Also, you're going to notice that the passage is sandwiched. Verses 2 and 16, book in the passage. And it begins with traditions, verse 2, and it ends with practices or customs. Another way to translate that word in verse 16. An astute reader is going to understand that the chapter 11, these 16 or 15 verses rather, are placed in between Two sections having to do with the Lord's Supper. The Lord's Supper precedes it, and teaching on the Lord's Supper comes after it. And even if we were to zoom out even further from that and go all the way back to chapter 8 and look at chapter 14, in that span, we would see that really this entire section is all about what the church should do and look like when it gathers together corporately. It's about the public assembly and worship of the church. And as we go through it, there's really one big idea, I think. One big idea that is essentially my sermon in a sentence, and if you're taking notes, you can write it down. We build up the church by the gospel when we order the church according to God's good creation. We build up the church in the gospel when we order the church according to God's good creation. There's going to be four points in my sermon. In verses 2 to 3, we're going to have to understand headship. This is really the logic, point one. We need to understand headship in order, verses four through six, to fill our church with honor. If you're following along in your bulletins, the outline's back there. We need to understand headship in order to fill our church with honor. And then, in verses eight all the way, or rather verses seven all the way through verse ten, we need to understand, or we need to reflect God's glory in our genders. We need to reflect God's glory in our genders if we are going to build up the church. I lost it. Somebody give it to me. I don't have it right in front of me. What's that last point again? Necessary. That's right. Necessary. That's the whole point, Mike. Oh, you lost me. Okay. Anyways, you follow along in your sheet. I didn't have it in my notes. It's my fault. There it is. Build it up in an orderly way. That's not what you said. (laughs) I like those glasses, by the way. They look good. All right, point one. Paul says in verse three, did you notice that? He says, I want you to understand. Rather, I want you to know something. Namely, he wants them to understand the goodness of God's created order. Well, later in the letter in chapter 14, Paul reminds us that God is not a God of confusion, but he's a God of peace. And peace in a church arises from godly order in that church. That's the point that Paul's going to make. And so I wonder, perhaps we might be helped by thinking about it in this way, that all the way back in chapter 3, the apostle referred to the church as God's building. Imagine if there was no order to building up a building. The architect designs it. Then all the workers from the foreman to the various skilled workers, they all show up. But then they ignore the architect's designs and they build whatever they want, however they want, whatever made them look good. So the concrete guy comes in and he pours the concrete slab and he, and he lets it dry overnight. And then the next day, the pneumatic drill guy wants to show off his skills and he destroys all of the work that the concrete guy did the week before. And so it goes. There's no order. There's just chaos. There's contention. And we would say that such a building is never going to stand. It's not going to fulfill the purpose envisioned by the architect. Well, the point of verse 3... Is that God has built order into our relationships? He is the architect of our world, and the church is His design. We're His building. And God's good design includes our relationships as men and women. Now, let me stop right here. Before we go any further, I want you to stop and consider just how gracious God is to tell us His plans. We don't have to make it up as we go. We don't have to ask the world to help us figure it out. God tells us in His Word all that we need to know for life and godliness. And He tells us here in verse 3 that this godly order revolves around this idea of headship. Notice the word is repeated three times in verse 3. But what does that word mean? A lot of times in the Bible, it just means head, as in head and shoulders, knees and toes, knees and toes. That's what it means. But like our English word, the Greek word has multiple meanings too. And the most common meaning carries the idea of authority or leadership. And so when the Bible is in talking about the eight-pound lump on top of our shoulders, this is how the Bible most often uses the word. Put your finger here. your bulletin or your ribbon or whatever it may be, right there in 1 Corinthians, I want you to turn to your right to Ephesians. And if you're not used to handling a Bible, it's only a few books away. You got 2 Corinthians and Galatians, and then you have Ephesians. And when you get there, I want you to stop in chapter 1, and I want you to scan down to verse 22. Verse 22. Here we read that he, speaking of God... Put all things under his feet, that is the Lord Jesus Christ, and gave him as head over all things to the church, to us. As head over all things, verse 22. The Lord Jesus Christ has authority, has dominion over all of God's creation and over his new creation, the church. That Christ's headship is all about authority. That's the idea. And I want you to fast forward to Ephesians chapter 5 because we're going to see the same word mentioned there. Ephesians chapter 5. Picking up in verse 22. Wives... Submit to your own husbands as to the Lord, for the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, his body, and is himself its Savior. Here we have a parallel between the husband and a wife, in Christ and the church, and the analogy is all held together by this idea of headship. Specifically one, look at that in verse 23, a headship, a kind of exercise of authority that is characterized by covenant love and self-sacrifice. Now those who get paid a whole lot, not a whole lot of money, to spend their time doing word studies in the Bible and in all the popular Greek literature of the day, they would understand and they would say that the best understanding of this term of head, kephalo, Is authority or leadership. That's exactly what we see here. And now I realize for just a minute that may make some of you a little bit nervous. All of us here are conscious of tragic abuses of authority, especially the abuse of of wives by their husbands. But you understand, the Bible never once condones violence. It never once condones abuse or or coercive behavior in marriage. In fact, it condemns that kind of behavior. In fact, it even goes so far as to show us that godly authority isn't at all violent. It's not quarrelsome or or harsh or selfish. Rather, a husband's authority over his wife, his headship, is to be characterized by the fruit of the Spirit— of love and peace, of patience, kindness, gentleness, and self-control. This was God's design for every marriage, not just Christian marriage, but whereas sin destroyed nature, grace restores it. And we can look back at verse 3 of our passage there. You can head back to where your finger or your ribbon is, 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 3. And we see there that that a husband's headship over a wife is sandwiched between two other relationships, and that's informative for us. First, notice it's sandwiched on the left by the phrase, the head of every man is Christ. And so the pattern of authority that we see in Christ toward his bride, the church, was to lay down his life in sacrificial loving sacrifice, or service rather. But second, you notice to the right of that phrase, the head of Christ is God. Well, that's not saying that the Son is eternally subordinate to the Father. That's heresy. But it is talking about the relationship between the Father and His Son, the Lord Jesus Christ, in their works of creation and redemption. That's why the title Christ is used and not the title Son. In his incarnation, Jesus said, My food is to do the will of my Father, John 4:34. Quoting Isaiah, he said to the father, I delight to do your will. It's my food. It's my delight. Famously, as many of you know, in the Garden of Gethsemane, he cried out, not my will, but yours be done. That's why the apostle Paul put it, Philippians chapter 2, that the Lord Jesus Christ became obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross, And so recall how then in view of of the son's obedience that the father said of him, you are my son with whom I am well pleased. The head of Christ is God. So we should never say that a husband is the head of his wife because that's the nature of the triune God in his essence. But what we can say, and this is really all we need to say, is that godly headship does not have to be harsh but loving because God is the head of Christ and God is love. And also to be under the headship of another doesn't have to be demeaning because Christ willingly submitted himself to God, his head, and his incarnation. And yet, even so, he's no less than the Father. He's equal with the Father. They have the same substance and power and eternity, as the Second London Confession says. And so all of this puts to rest any idea that headship necessarily implies superiority and inferiority. The husband may be the head of his wife, and his wife may voluntarily submit to her husband. But that no more implies that the husband is superior to his wife than the father is superior to Christ. There's so much more that can be said on this, more than I have time to say this afternoon but I'd like for you to think a little bit more about this. And if you want to, you can revisit my sermon series on marriage and gender just a couple of years back. you find it on YouTube there. You'll find Ephesians 5, Genesis 1 and 2, a whole host of passages that might be helpful to you if you want to do a little bit more of a deep dive in it. But in order to move on in the passage, I had to spend a little bit of time here in verse 3 doing some heavy lifting because it forms the theological foundation for verses 4 through 6. Verse 3, we need to understand headship if, verses 4 through 6, we're going to fill our church with honor. Let's look at verse 4. Every man who prays or prophesies with his head covered dishonors his head. Remember, his head is Christ. But every wife who prays or prophesies with her head uncovered dishonors her head. Verse 3, her head is her husband since it's the same as if her head were shaven. Now listen, the presenting issue, what we see on the surface, the presenting issue is whether a person's head is covered or not. But the real issue under the issue, the point behind the issue, the heart of the matter as it were, is about us embracing God's created order so that our life together as a church flows. When I was a kid, I left my bike out in the rain for a number of days at my dad's house. My dad eventually brought it in, and it sat in the garage unridden for a period of time, and then sometime later, I took the bike, took it out to ride it, and the pedals didn't work so well. The chain was noisy. It was all kinked up. It had rusted from all of the rain, and so my dad took off the chain, and and he cleaned it, and he sprayed some WD-40 on it, and then he put back, and everything flowed perfectly can it ever be the case that churches are like rusty chains? That's what the Apostle Paul's considering. We can get all kinked up. We can get out of order and noisy. But God designed our life together to flow, for there to be honor and and not dishonor. And for that, Paul says both men and women need to embrace the goodness of God's created order. Specifically, men need to pray with their heads uncovered, and wives need to pray with their heads covered. What does that mean, and why is nobody's head covered in here? First off, you need to notice something. If you zoom out and you look at the whole chapter at once, you're going to notice that it vacillates between husbands, specifically, and then men in general, or man, singular. And the same, if you glance through the passage, is true with wives or women. And one of the things that makes this passage notoriously difficult to interpret is because the same Greek word for man can also be translated husband. And the same Greek word that can be translated woman can also be translated wife. And so in the end, how do we know which one it should be? Should it be man And woman, or should it be husband and wife? And in the end, context determines which translation is best. I think the ESV nails it. I think it gets it right. Because it goes from speaking about husbands in verse 3 to men in verse 4. Do you notice the transition? And the reason is because the context is shifting from marriages to the church's public gathering. Verse 4 is true for all the men in the church, whether they're married or not. But then I want you to notice that Paul doesn't make a similar switch from wives in verse 3 to women in verse 5. Once again, he's talking still only to wives, and so we need to ask ourselves, why is verse 4 applied to all men in the church and verse 5 applied only to the women who are wives in the church? The short answer is, I think, goes something like this. Every man in the church should conduct himself like a man and every woman in the church like a woman. But if any woman in the church is also a wife, then she and her husband must publicly relate to one another in a way that exemplifies the unique pattern that we see in verse 3. The head of a wife is her husband. In the customary ways... In this church, at this time, for wives to symbolize their relationship to their husbands is by covering their heads when praying or speaking God's word. And Paul is going to address each in turn. First, look at verse 4. He addresses men. He says men shouldn't have their heads covering when praying or prophesying. Why is that? Some suggest that the covering here might be long hair, that a man should have long hair. Is that what it's talking about? I think more likely it's talking about a material covering, maybe like a hood or, or a shawl or a scarf or something like that. You have to understand that covered heads were common for men in, in pagan temples. And perhaps that's what Paul's saying, is that imitating pagan worship in this way dishonors Jesus. That would seem to make sense in the context of chapter 8 and 9 and 10, specifically about idol worship and, and not participating. But I think even more than that, given Paul's emphasis on the goodness of of God's created order, verse 4 is ultimately about godly men presenting themselves in a distinctly manly way or a masculine way. By that, here's what I mean. I mean that a man should physically present himself like a man and not like a woman. Verse 14 seems to suggest at least that if you glance down at it. But I don't think that verse 4 is just referring to the physical appearance of men in the church, that that a man should look like a man and and not a woman. But also, I think it refers to the conduct of men in the church as they pray and they speak God's word to the church. And so you may remember, for example, in 1 Timothy chapter 2, what does Paul write? He says, I desire that in every place, that is in every church gathered in every place for all time, I desire that in every place that men should pray, lifting holy hands without anger or quarreling. That language of holy hands doesn't mean that they raise their hands when they sing and and worship. It's holy hands means that, that the way of life, the way that they work, the way that they labor, the way that they are a husband and a father, everything that they do would be unstained by sin such that when they stand up and pray in front of the church, they're not disqualified for being a hypocrite. Paul wants Christian men to act like godly men. And one of the ways that Christian men reflect the goodness of God's created order is by taking the initiative to lead in prayer. You see, verse 5 suggests that, woman, that women could pray in the church's gathering and that they were, in fact, doing so. But in 1 Timothy 2, Paul specifically commands that, that men should pray when the church gathers And so Paul puts a kind of weighty oughtness on men in the gathered church that he nowhere puts on women. And so men reflect the goodness of God's created order when they look and they act like men, not just men, but godly men, holy men. But then I want you to notice that Paul shifts his focus to wives there in verses five and six. Paul may be talking about Long hair worn up there as you scan through it. Maybe that's what verse 15 is getting at as you glance at it. More likely, though, I think verse 6 seems to suggest that the covering is something distinct from her hair. Maybe a headscarf of some kind. And so scholars have noted that to be without a head covering for a woman in Corinth was a sign of availability. Something characteristic, perhaps, of the temple prostitutes described all the way back in chapter 6. And so then it makes sense in light of Paul's previous instruction that the church's women would distinguish themselves from pagan women in pagan temples by covering their heads. They would avoid being scandalous and they would cover their heads to show themselves according to a sign of godliness and of modesty and of humility and submitting to their husbands. And so in one sense, Paul seems to be saying that Christian women in public worship shouldn't dress in any way that seeks their advantage and not the advantage of others. Remember, that's how we ended chapter 10. Hey, look at me. Notice me. He's saying that's not how a woman dresses in the public worship of the church. And I think that's certainly true. Modesty is the key. But verses 5 and 6 imply more than that. Because it says here that if a woman were to pray without a head covering, then they would dishonor their husbands. They would bring shame on him. Remember all the way back in chapter 7. Remember how the members of this church were thinking about marriage. Now that I'm free in Christ, I'm free from marriage. Free from my husband, free from my wife, free to be more devoted to Christ. And you remember what Paul's exhortation was to that entire chapter? Remain as you are. You're not free to divorce. Remain married. And so this independent, self-promoting, look-at-me behavior that Paul's warning against, which, by the way, it doesn't seem that they were really doing because he's commending them up in verse 2. But this independent, self-promoting, look-at-me behavior... He says, it not only dishonors your husband, but it disregards the goodness of God's created order. He says, no, instead, I want you to honor your husbands in the church's gathering. Honor them by publicly demonstrating his headship by showing I'm with him. Don't dress to get attention, but dress modestly in a godly spirit of humility as you aim to submit to your husbands as God has designed. Now, I realize that, Some of you sisters, like sisters in this church, may be eager to publicly pray or speak God's word. And that's generally a good and godly desire. Amen. Praise God for that. But given verse 4, what we just saw about men, I want you to consider how you might pray, even become more eager to see godly men taking the initiative to pray in the church. And then, men, when you when you pray and serve the church. You are to look like men, and you are to act like men. I see pictures of men from time to time walking runways in fashion shows these days, and, and what I see is men dress like women. And the fashion industry always sets the pulse for cultural norms. But God hates androgyny because it rejects the goodness of His created order. It rejects the creative distinctions that he's given to men. And women. And so, brothers, let's present ourselves as men. Let's act like men. Let's take initiative in the ministry of the word and of prayer. Let's aspire to be elders. The Apostle Paul says in 1 Timothy 3:1, well, that's a good thing to aspire to, because here's the deal: if you aspire to the elder and you attain to all of the godly qualifications of the office, and God in his spirit, according to his wisdom, never qualifies you to be apt to teach, then your godliness is a win for the church. So aim for the office, and if all you hit is godliness, then we win. Aspire to these things. And husbands especially, in light of verse 3, we're to do all these things in a way that loves our wives above all. Exemplify the self-sacrificing love of your head in your headship. That's what it means to be a man. Well, if we do these things and we live together, in light of verse 3 through 6, our church is going to be filled up with honor. And our confused world needs to see that. They need to see the goodness of God's created order. They need to see husbands that love their wives like Christ loved the church. They need to see women who trust the goodness of of God's word and and of his wisdom and submit to their husbands, though their husbands may not every minute of the day be submission worthy. They trust the Lord. The world needs to see these things because it testifies to the goodness and the glory and the grace of our God. But let me pause here for just a moment before we press on, because what about Paul's comment there in verse 5 on a wife shaving her head? Is a woman wrong to have short hair or no hair? I think Paul would say that it depends on at least three things. First, can she help it? Is it due to some medical condition? Or perhaps some other kind of of hindrance or condition for him, That's been the case for a number of women in our church through the years. If so, we don't need to think twice about whether or not it's contrary to Scripture, and we certainly don't need to make her feel bad for it. Secondly, is her short hair a culturally acceptable form of femininity? Meaning, is there zero confusion to anybody that looks at that sister about whether she looks like a woman because she wants to look like a woman? Well, if that's the case, then there's really no problem. But on the other hand, if she's trying to look less feminine and is deliberately attempting to look more masculine, well, then that sister may be moving away from the goodness of God's created order and deserves a gentle exhortation to come back. Now, I don't know of any saints in our church that are currently doing this, but it's a good thing for you and I to keep in mind for the future as we aim to help one another follow Christ. All of that ultimately leads us to our third point, verses 7 to 10, that we must reflect God's glory in our genders. We must reflect God's glory in our genders. Let's familiarize ourselves with the verses again, beginning in verse 7. For a man ought not to cover his head, since he is the image of the glory of God, but woman is the glory of man. For man was not made for woman, but woman from man. Neither was man created for woman, but woman for man. That is why a wife ought to have a symbol of authority on her head because of the angels. Most of you should notice that verses 7 through 9 are just unpacking Genesis 2. That's why Paul is moving from the language of husband and wife to the language of man and woman, singular, Adam and Eve, The Apostle Paul is leading us in some Old Testament Bible study in verses 7, 8, and 9. And he says here that man is the image and the glory of God. You say, good, amen. That's Genesis 1. But then he says, woman is the glory of man. What? Notice right away that a word is missing. You see what it is? Man is the image and the glory of God, but woman is the glory of man. What's the word that's missing? Image. That's because woman, just like man, was made in the image of God. Listen closely to Genesis 1. Then God said, Let us make man in our image after our likeness. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. Beloved, Genesis 1 and 2 is the foundation for both the equality of men and women and for our creative differences. Not creative differences like in terms of art, but God's creation. Our post-feminist culture says that you cannot be different and equal at the same time. Masculinity and femininity, those are just cultural constructs invented by powerful men to subjugate women. But Paul says, no, true equality can only happen, or rather they say, no, true equality can only happen once we've eliminated our differences. Beloved, that is a satanic doctrine. Doctrine. And it is intent on destroying nature, because that's what sin does. But grace restores nature. By the gospel's power in verse 8, Christian men and women in local churches restore and reflect the goodness of God's creation order. And when we do this well, according to verse 9, put your eyes on that, God's glory reflects off of godly men and then refracts off of godly women. And he says in verse 10, the angels in heaven are witnesses to God's creation. They're the ones who delivered Genesis to Moses. They know all about it. In chapter 4 of this letter, the same angels acted as witnesses to Paul's ministry. And they love to look in on the glory of God in the church when men and women live in light of God's created order. They love to see grace restore nature in the lives of the saints. So that's what he means there when he says, because of the angels. It's a little odd, isn't it? An odd ending to verse 10. Why, Paul? I don't know, because the angels. Some of you kiddos, you can keep that in your back pocket. When Your parent comes to you and says, why would you do that? I don't know. Because the angels, oh, okay, can't argue with that. Well, that's not exactly what Paul means here, but what he does mean is that the same angels that were there at creation marvel at God's recreation through the gospel, marvel when grace restores nature in the lives of men and women and in our marriages. They rejoice in it because it gives glory to God, as we see there in verse 8. Well, you and I have to reflect the glory of God in our genders. That's what Paul says in verses 7 through 10. Why? Because in verses 11 to 16, that's the only way to build up the church in an orderly way. That leads us to our final section, verses 11 to 16. In verse 11, Paul, you notice there, uses an important phrase. Do you see it? In the Lord. He's already used it once in relation to Christian marriages, all the way back in chapter 7, that widows are free to marry in the Lord. And he's going to use it again at the end of chapter 15. Listen to this. Therefore, he says, be steadfast and always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord your labor is not in vain. And that is the perfect capstone to this entire section on the church's gathered life knowing that in the Lord y'all's labor is not in vain. Here's the point. Then in verses 11 and 12, Paul argues that men and women in the church are not independent from one another, but they are interdependent. Not independent but interdependent. And that means that it's going to take both godly men and godly women, both husbands and wives, laboring together according to their God-given natures and roles to build up the church. To put it in the language of Genesis 2, it is not good for man to be alone. So every church is to be an orderly church, Paul says. And a church's order should reflect the creation's order especially with how men and women relate to one another in public worship. This means that any agenda that openly rejects and usurps the role of male headship in marriage or qualified male leadership in the church potentially disorders and harms the church because it's contrary to God's Word. Given that, to the, anything that actively encourages men to advocate their God-given leadership in the home and the church or that discourages men from aspiring to godly leadership as husbands and church elders also potentially disorders and harms the church because it's contrary to God's word. A disordered church spiritually harms its members, and it obscures the gospel from the world. Oh, but when brothers and sisters, husbands and wives, labor together in the Lord, according to God's prescribed order, well, then the church is built up, and the gospel is made visible To those who are watching, remember at the end of this chat or the end of this section, you're gonna have non-believers walking into the church, and it's gonna be orderly and they're gonna be speaking God's word. And you remember what the non-believers say? Surely God is here. It makes the gospel visible when we order ourselves according to God's wisdom in creation, and we do not have the authority to reject or redact or edit God in any way. He is God, and we are not. And so, brothers, let us not be so arrogant to think for a minute that we can do this whole ministry thing on our own. Paul says in verse 12, remember your mom. (laughs) Remember the womb that bore you. You're not independent. The ministry of women in the church is essential because generational discipleship is essential. Consider Paul's words in Titus 2. Here we have older women teaching younger women word ministry, women to women in the context of the church. And in this case, it says that older women are to train the young women to love their husbands and their children, to be self-controlled, pure, to work at home, to be kind and submissive to their husbands, that the word of God may not be reviled. Sisters, some of you might grumble from time to time, here, you might be tempted to, because your duties at home with your children keep you from doing what you might consider to be real ministry in the church, of, of attending that Bible study, or, or discipling those ladies, or serving in those ways. You know, the kind of ministry that some of your husbands are able to do. You might be tempted to grumble and complain at the circumstances in which you find yourself. But the Bible says that your at-home ministry as a mom and a wife is part of the church's word ministry because our ministry is a multi-generational ministry. We want to raise up all those in our care and the fear and instruction of the Lord. And so it's necessary for ensuring that our children and our children's children don't revile the gospel. So don't think for a minute that the lot that God has given you as a wife and a mother is keeping you from real word ministry, the ministry that our Lord has given you day in and day out with this next generation Is to help alongside your husband raise them up in the fear and instruction of the Lord, such that the word of God would not be reviled in their hearts. That is a high calling, and that's part of the church's. That's part of the church's word ministry. So we work together. Discipling one another, women meeting with women, men meeting with men, praying, singing, preaching, teaching. We, We work together with a godly interdependence according to God's created order to build up the church and the power of the gospel across generations. That's what God has called us to do. That's what His order in the church causes to flow in the church. And so when any of us feels the temptation to grumble about our circumstances, whether it be marriage or singleness or whatever, remember the end of verse 12. All things are from God. That's a brief but powerful statement, isn't it? Who we are... Whether we are male or female or husband or wife or single man or a single woman, it is all, as we saw in 1 Corinthians 7, a gift from God for as long as you're in that season. And that is for your good and for the good of our church and the glory of God in the world. And so we put away grumbling and we give thanks always instead by God's grace, laboring together in our church according to God's design. And so he says, verse 13, consider all this for yourselves. Do you think I'm right? That's what he's saying. And then he answers his own question in verses 14 and 15, saying, well, listen, if you really think about it, nature teaches the exact same thing. In other words, we all innately know that men are men and women are women that men and women are different and that men cannot become women and that women cannot become men. Gender is not a cultural construct, but it is an immutable feature of God's good creation. But notice, even though nature teaches us about men and women, nature does not teach us how long hair should be. That's not built in to the law of God written on our hearts. And on any given occasion, in any given context, men might have even long hair, contrary to this passage here, even by God's own positive command, like the Nazarites and Samson. And so nature does not ultimately compel us to have a certain hair length, though it does teach us about what it means to be a man and what it means to be a woman. One pastor summarizes this well, I think. He says, nature doesn't teach us how long our hair should be. Culture teaches us the acceptable hair lengths for men and women. Nature, though, teaches us that men ought to adorn themselves like men and women like women. The natural God-given inclination of men and women is to be ashamed of that which confuses their sexual difference culture gives us the symbols of masculinity and femininity while nature dictates that men should embrace their manhood and that women should embrace their womanhood. So what should we conclude then in light of that? Verse 16, only that The custom or the practice in all churches everywhere for all time is not wearing a head covering or having hair of a certain length, but upholding what the head covering symbolizes. The thing that is symbolized is more important than the symbol itself. Namely, as we see in verse 16, an orderly peacefulness in the church according to God's design and not a rusty bike chain of contentiousness. That's what God's good order in creation does. So what do we need to take away from the passage? I'm going to give you at least five things, five applications. First, the passage teaches us the importance of decorum in Christian assemblies. We've already established from earlier chapters that God not only cares that he's worshipped, but that God cares how he's worshipped. God has told us in His Word what He wants, and we are to receive it by faith and in humility, no matter how countercultural or counterintuitive it may be to us. God alone gets to defer define the terms by which we approach Him. Full stop. We don't get to get creative with our worship beyond the bounds of God's word. In fact, if you look through the history of God's people, especially in the Old Testament, every time God's people got creative outside of God's word and worship, it never worked out real well. It often led to death and curses and a whole host of other things. God has told us how he wants to be worshiped. And he's told us again here in 1 Corinthians 11 that we are to worship in a way that upholds and exemplifies the goodness of his creative order, which leads us to a second application. It shows us the implications of human sexuality. God's design for men and women are relevant not only to our public interactions out in the world generally, but especially to our public worship. That's what's in focus here. And so the ministry relationships of Covenant Baptist Church, whether that's elders to members, men to women, or husbands to wives, all these relationships should reflect how God has created us as men and as women. And our marriages should reflect the order in which God has put into them, with a husband as the head of the wife, and a wife under the headship of her husband. The husband loving his wife as Christ loved the church, and a wife submitting to her husband, not only as Christ or as the church submits to Christ, but as we see up in verse 3, even the way that Christ submits to God as his head in his incarnation. Thirdly, Head coverings are customary, but not binding. Now, listen, I realize that a whole host of godly people are going to arrive at a different conviction from this passage. And so, if that is you, or if that's any member that comes into our church who holds a different conviction from 1 Corinthians 11 concerning head coverings then we will never, ever, ever tell you or that person to go against their conscience. That's a dangerous thing to do. We're not going to make jokes about it. We're not going to laugh about it. We are going to honor you and uphold you in your Bible-bound conscience. Romans 14, we're going to say, let each one be convinced in his own mind. It's a disputable issue in which we can still maintain the unity of the church as each one aims to honor and obey God in this church, both sides reflecting the glory of God's created order. But that said, it seems most likely, I think, that Paul allows us to employ our own cultural cues of manhood and womanhood as long as they don't uphold and confuse God's design for masculinity and femininity. Fourth, if not head coverings, then what? When women pray and prophesy in our assembly, that is when they pray God's word and speak God's word to God's people, they have to do it with some sign that signifies their authority to do so. In other words, something must tell the congregation this woman is not throwing off her role as the glory of man. She is not throwing off her role as a helper to her husband, who is her head. Now, according to Scripture, God gives qualified men to oversee the church's elders, and he's given elders the primary ministry of word and prayer. And so when any sisters in our church pray or or read or speak God's word in our public gatherings, then 1 Corinthians 11 compels us to order our gatherings in a way that doesn't confuse God's order, but upholds it. That sisters pray and speak God's word as those who are under authority in the church, but also in their homes. So prudentially, when both men and women in our church pray or, or sing or read in our public gatherings, they do so as dear saints, both men and women, under godly authority. We've, we've chosen prudentially in our own gathering to make this obvious by having an elder lead our entire service from beginning to end. That the functions of an elder would be fulfilled by an elder. Though perhaps there's permissions in 1 Corinthians 11 and elsewhere, for both men and women to read, speak, and pray God's Word. But any, at any rate, all of that is a 1 Corinthians 11 decision. Now, if a sister is a married woman, and she prays and speaks God's Word, not only under the authority of our elders, but especially under the authority of her husband... This might be symbolized, for instance, in our own culture by a wedding ring or maybe in the way that she dresses or by taking her husband's last name or in a well-known demeanor of gentleness and respect. Whatever it may be, the symbol is not as important as the thing symbolized. And the thing symbolized is that the head of a wife is her husband and the aim of every wife ought to be to honor her head in public worship. Fifth, and finally, an ordered church, including the things that we've seen here in 1 Corinthians 11, makes the gospel visible. God's word orders churches to make the gospel visible, to show off his righteousness and his glory and his grace and his love. To demonstrate all of this, God sent his only begotten Son into the world to save sinners. And that from that same love, the Lord Jesus Christ willingly subjected himself to the Father's will, the Father being, as it were, his head, even to the point of death on a cross. He did this to pay for the sins of every man and every woman and every child who would repent and believe in him, who would receive him by faith and rest in him alone for righteousness so that sinners like us might be reconciled to an all-holy God. But after raising Jesus from the dead, God, the Father, his head, gave the Lord Jesus Christ as head over all things, and he gave him to us, his church. And he shows us what good authority looks like. The kind of authority that, quote, to quote 2 Samuel 23, dawns on others like the morning light, like the sun shining forth on a cloudless morning, like rain that makes grass to sprout from the earth. Lord willing, that's what our leadership in our homes look like, and that's what our leadership in our church looks like. Always imperfectly, we still struggle with indwelling sin, but that's what we pray for, because that's what Christ has exemplified. And so we see in Christ that such an authority is not domineering, it's not coercive, but it is shaped by a loving self-sacrifice. And this is the pattern for all godly authority whether in our homes or in our churches. So when we order our life together after the mind of Christ, and God-given structures of authority and submission are embraced with the same heart of Christ, the same Christ that submitted to his own father, as head, then the gospel becomes visible to the world even in humble little gatherings like this one. But I want you to understand, Paul says, That the head of every man is Christ. And the head of every wife is her husband. And the head of Christ is God. Would you pray with me? Let's ask God to give us the grace to believe it and to apply it.